Well, happy Sunday to you. We're going to wrap up our series, Deconstruction, today. Last week, we looked at one of the reasons was burnout. Today, we're going to be looking at another reason why people deconstruct their faith. Now, deconstruction has been around since the 80s, and I'll give you a quick recap in case it's the first time you're listening and you missed maybe last week. Let me kind of build some context on what deconstruction is. Deconstruction was... Uh, developed by Jock Derrida in the 1980s, and he desired to deconstruct binary constructs like black, white, male, female, good, evil. He wanted to deconstruct those binaries. And so he wanted to criticize literary and philosophical texts, but he also wanted to be able to critique and criticize political institutions. So he believed that your beliefs, right or wrong, built a a permanent foundation. And so he believed that if culture, which is a group of people's belief system, determines that something is wrong, then it's time to deconstruct. Okay, so the example nowadays is male and female. Men can be women and women can be men. So the binary construct of male and female is, according to Derrida and those on want to criticize more like male domination, is that the binary construct construct of male and female is patriarchal and misogynistic. It oppresses women. Now, each culture handles this binary different. And America is male-dominated. And Derrida would say that we need to deconstruct the binary construct so women can dominate. Now, here's the truth. The truth is that every year there are more boys than girls born. Perhaps it has to do with men dying more quickly because of lifestyle choices or because it's the natural order of the world. Jordan Peterson would say, well, look at lobsters. As an example, it's the natural order of the world. So deconstruction is not necessarily based on truth. It's based on desire. It's the desire to be free from structure and authority. So let's, let's look at faith now. Let's look at deconstruction through the lens of faith. There's different definitions, and so I'm going to read four definitions of church leaders and how they would define deconstruction. So Brian Zand defines deconstruction as a crisis of Christian faith that leads to either a reevaluation of Christianity or sometimes a total abandonment of Christianity. Mark Hackett defines it as this, the systematic pulling apart of one's belief system for examination. James White explains it this way. To some, the term, quote, deconstruct, end quote, can mean rejecting Christianity entirely, while others describe the process as rebuffing certain cultural beliefs associated with Christianity. So like an example would be, maybe you grew up at a church and uh, no drinking, no, no drinking whatsoever. So that became a something that you associated with Christianity. He goes, so, quote, Exvangelicals, end quote, can mean both those who have rejected the label evangelical, aspects of the evangelical subculture, the evangelical church, or those who have rejected evangelical faith altogether. And being an evangelical means you really believe the five basics of our faith that the Bible is God's word, it's inerrant, it's inspired. You have Jesus being born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died the death that we should have died. So it was a substitutionary death for, ato- for our, the atonement of our sins. Um, he rose from the dead uh, after three days. Salvation is only through faith. Hmm. 
people walking away from that. Matt Chandler says this, you and I are in an age where deconstruction and turning away from and leaving the faith has become some sort of sexy thing to do. He says, I contend that if you ever experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, actually, that's really impossible to deconstruct from. And here's the tension with any of those definitions. It's a negative term. Deconstruction is a negative term. You're tearing down. There's no, I, there's really no purpose of building back up. It is, you want to tear down. You just want to start all over again. You, the idea of the focus is tearing down instead of building up. And so the, from the conversations that Jenny and I have had with people, the main reason we see is that people, we're, we're just hurt. We're hurt. We're, we're hurt by someone, uh, what the church said, maybe what a leader did, what a pastor did, maybe a family friend who was a Christian. They did something that really hurt them. And in the end of the day, they were just hurt. Other people, they have done deconstruction because it was the trendy thing to do. Well, their friend did it, or their pastor did it, or their leader did it. I do believe in the same breath, deconstruction could be a good thing. Now, notice what Jesus, there's a conversation Jesus has with the disciples, very fascinating. And they grew up believing in Saturday school that the, the Messiah was going to be a military leader, a lot like David. Now, notice the question Jesus asked. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's like, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Notice they didn't say David. No, they said a prophet. Because the things that Jesus was doing, teaching, healing, the miracles, those were things that prophets did. See, he was not in the same mold as like a David. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's saying in so many words, Jesus, you are our king. And yet you don't fit in the mold of what other people are saying, but we know who you are. We know who you are. And a king was not only to be believed in, but to be followed. And Peter's saying in so many words, you are our king and we are committed to following you and your commands. We're fully pledging our allegiance to you. So how would we define deconstruction with all this in mind? I would say it would go maybe something like this. Deconstruction is rejecting anything that harms me and others from effectively following Jesus and his command. So I need to be deconstructing things that are taking me away from Jesus as the center of my life. So the second reason, we, last week we talked about burnout, another reason why people are deconstructing their faith is they no longer feel connected or they are connected. Now, many of us have seen or heard the stats for the first time in American history that church attendance has fallen b- below 50%. Now, it's been decreasing since the 60s. As blue laws went away, prayer was taken out of school, and you had the sexual revolution. When the truth is, it's not only in church have we seen people dis- disconnect. We've seen people disconnect in a lot of areas in their life, especially when it comes to relationships. And over the last couple of years, we've seen some reasons why people are dis- disconnecting from each other. Our friendships are kept online. Um, there's less interaction as before. Like we're going weeks or months without talking to or texting people. 
I know during the pandemic, that was a lot for some of us as we were readjusting and now we're getting back to it. And we've had some friends that are new and we have some old friends that we haven't talked in a very long time with. Um, Maybe we're going less places now because of the gas prices. I know a couple years ago, we went, we didn't go far. We didn't go a a long distance because of the pandemic. Uh, Maybe for you, the reason why you're disconnecting is because you have less in common with people. Issues are now political, whether the vaccine, abortion, presidential candidate, who you're backing, things have become very political. Or maybe you have a difference of opinion on how to raise kids. Or maybe for you, you've isolated. You're afraid or maybe you're, you feel shame or maybe you're embarrassed because of something that's happened in your life and you don't want anyone to know. And so that personal issue, that personal challenge has isolated you from other people. See, I believe the place that all of us need to get back to is the table. And there's something about eating at a table with friends and family. In fact, eating alone has is, is been become more like a normal thing in our culture. Solo dining in New York City has increased 80% over the last eight years. In Japan, they have what's called low-interaction dining. You pass bowls of noodles through black curtains into individual booths. Now, that would kind of freak me out all of a sudden. Like, I, I sit down, you know, I'm ready to place my order, and all of a sudden I see hands with a bowl coming through the curtains. Like, ah, I don't know about that. But, but research is, is revealing, like, this isn't a good thing. That this trend is mentally, emotionally, and physically unhealthy. It's resulting in depression and diabetes and high blood pressure. Now, it doesn't mean that we can never eat alone. But the research is showing and proving that this is not a sustainable practice. The, the research is catching up with what we believe as a church. That we were not meant to do life alone. You were not meant to do life alone. I was not meant to do life alone. And all, although I can't speak for all churches, I can't explain why we do what we do as a church and how you and I are invited into community, or should we say, the table. Something that has stuck out um, about Jesus in, in, in the biographies written about him are the lessons that he taught and the community that he built around the table. Did you ever notice, like, the first miracle was at a wedding banquet? I mean, he turned water into wine. Uh, the conversation at Mary and Martha's home. The, the conversation at Zacchaeus' home, feeding of the crowds, eating on the beach after the resurrection. And then there is often times where he would talk about the kingdom of God and he would use the analogy of a banquet. See, in all these situations with Jesus, it was less about what was on the table and more about who they were becoming at the table. See, the, the, the same... It's true for us as followers of Jesus. When we're pursuing each other and we're pursuing Jesus, the Holy Spirit is using that community to change us into becoming more like Jesus. And there are certain things that we can, we can learn from Jesus as he ate with his disciples. Now, let's look at the last meal that he had before his crucifixion with his disciples. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. So this is something he was looking forward to. 
He says, for now I tell you that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So they're sitting down at the Passover meal, and the Passover meal is more than how we do communion or the Lord's Supper where we have juice and bread. They had salad, they had meat, they had the wine, they had the bread. And the Passover meal was something they'd done for over a thousand years, and it pointed to Jesus as the future ultimate sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus, he, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in some translations, it says, take and eat. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Again, some translations would take and drink. You know, it's so interesting. Remember there was an invitation in the very beginning of time, in the very beginning of our history, of our human history. You had the devil invite Adam and Eve to take and eat of the fruit that was forbidden. See, Jesus is redeeming the invitation of take and eat. See, Satan's invitation to take and eat brought death. Jesus' invitation to take and eat brings life. And when the disciples took and ate, it was much different than when Adam and Eve took and ate. See, when they took and ate in the garden, it opened up the curse of sin. But when the disciples took and ate at the table, it opened them up for the forgiveness of sin through Jesus. And Jesus continued, He said, but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For he has been determined that the Son of Man must, for it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? And the disciples began to ask each other, which of them would never do such a thing? I'm glad that those few verses are in there because for some of us, we're afraid to we're afraid to go to the table because we have a fear. We have a fear that someone is going to betray us. So we haven't grown our community. We haven't grown our friendships. We haven't grown because we have a fear of betrayal. And eating at the table requires vulnerability with the chance of betrayal. See, even with the chance of betrayal and with the eventual betrayal, Jesus still valued the table enough to eat at the table. So there are two takeaways of why eating together in a community is such a value. Number one, the table is where we grow as a community. The table is where we grow as a community. Jesus was building a foundation for the disciples during the three years of meals. I mean, he was building a very strong foundation. And from the lessons they learned to the miracles they experienced, they grew as a group centered and unified on the message of Jesus. It's also an opportunity for us as we get together with our groups or with our friends and our family. Like, it's a great time for the Holy Spirit to teach us through the scriptures, through curriculum, through each other's stories. I love getting together with our 65 and older group. I love getting together with them. We always meet at brunch. We have good food and the stories that are shared, how we open up the scriptures together. Uh, we tell how God is doing and working in our lives. It's so incredible. And I've learned that the strength of our relationship with our Heavenly Father deepens as we develop our other relationships. 
I believe the best place to do it is over food. Do you know that Adam in the Hebrew means human and Eve in the Hebrew means life? And God intended from the very beginning that we were meant to do life together, not solo. And regardless of political views or secondary views or opinions, the table is a place for Christians to reconcile. God uses the table to form us to become more like Jesus. And the second thing, and I love what Fredo Ramos says, he says the table is where our joys and pains meet the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I imagine that there are laughs between Jesus and his disciples. But there was also times where there was sadness. There was doubt. There was uncertainty. There was sadness. Guys, I don't know where we would be, Jenny and I, without the friendships we develop over the years. Jenny and I can look back at the conversations we've had with friends, whether at our table or their table or our public table. Sharing our story of infertility sharing our story on how Jenny's parents died very unexpectedly. See, it's a place where we've sat down with people and we've dug into struggles, we've, done with, we've dug into stories, and we've dug into sin. And whether you're listening or you're sharing, there is so much healing that can happen at the table when you're known by others and we're all pointing each other to Jesus. Because it's at the cross where we find forgiveness and it's at the resurrection we find life. And I believe at the table is the place where we are able to lean in and hear each other's stories, our struggles, and our sins. We're able to laugh together and celebrate. It's also a place where we're able to share what's not going well in our life. We're able to pray with others. We're able to support others. And all of this is possible because we have a purpose that God has given us. Jesus has given us this purpose of just as I have loved you, love one another. And this purpose takes a hold. It takes, I mean, it has legs and feet when we begin to eat at the table together. The purpose of that command would be meaningless without Jesus' resurrection. So our commitment is not only to be a healthy church and organization, but growing in our community with each other. We believe this is part of our spiritual growth. Our approach to spiritual growth and discipleship is circular, not just linear. So our discipleship model, we want to pursue three relationships with God, with those inside the church, and those outside the church. And so we say pursue intimacy with God, community with insiders, and influence with outsiders. So our responsibility, like my responsibility as, as, as a leader, is to create environments in our church that not only encourage you to do and pursue those three relationships, but equip you to do those three relationships. And here's the deal that I've learned. There's going to be different seasons. Like you're going to go through different seasons and I'm going to go through different seasons in life. But the thing that doesn't change is the fact that we as humans like to eat. The table is a mainstay. No matter what season of life you're in, the table is a mainstay to build community. So if you look at our linear approach, we have what's called steps. We have starting point, which is an eight-week small group that allows you an opportunity to investigate Jesus. It allows you to explore our faith. Then we have the Bible 
the Bible app, which is we have a reading plan. So our church is on the Bible app and you're able to follow our church and we go through a Bible plan. So right now we're going through, uh, I believe, I don't know, we're in the New Testament yet. I don't know, we're in phase or part three of a four-part Bible through the year, reading through the Bible in a year. We have short-term groups and it's a group of adults that get together for eight uh, for four to eight weeks to understand, discuss, or apply biblical principles from a topic. We have D groups, and there are development groups. We try to meet monthly. We have community groups, and they meet weekly for connection and spiritual growth. And then we also offer classes from Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know, um, I don't know if you're in a football or not, but I've been following some of the, the, the training camp and what's going on. And I'm a huge Steelers fan. I love the Pittsburgh Steelers. And one thing that I've learned listening in on how things are going, because they drafted a quarterback after Big Ben retired. They drafted a quarterback, uh, Kenny Pickett out of Pitt. And one former coach said the thing that we're looking for, or the coaching staff is looking for, is consistency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he might be intense and he might be really good at first, but what we're looking for is consistency because consistency is more important than intensity. Consistency is more important than intensity. And what we want, how we want to equip you and encourage you is let's be consistent. Let's be consistent. And it's true that when something is more enjoyable, the more likely you are to stick with it over the long run. And how many of us would argue that getting together at a table with people and eating does it become more enjoyable over time? The table is where we grow in our relationship with others as God intended. And there's a story that Leonard Sweet shares in his book. So Magic Johnson and Larry Bird faced each other on the basketball court, and they were rivals, whether it was in high school, college, or the NBA. And, I mean, it was a legendary rivalry. They disliked each other like no one else. And that dislike was intense year after year after year. And then somewhere along the way, Converse decided to pay these two athletes, these two rivals, to shoot a shoe commercial together. And so they faced each other in the commercial on the court. You know, Bird was wearing the white shoes and Irvin was wearing the black shoes. And Bird insisted that they film the commercial at his farm in Indiana. And so, of course, it, it was a very... Um, you could tell the superstars are circling each other. It was icy. It was cold. But when they broke for lunch and started to go their separate ways, Larry Bird's mom announced that she had made lunch and invited everyone to her table. And then in that moment, Larry Bird looked back and he's like, in that moment, it was at that table that I discovered Irvin Johnson. I never liked Magic Johnson very much, but Irvin, I like a lot. And Irvin didn't come out until I met him at mom's table. See, y'all, there's something that happens at the table. There's something that happens at the table. We are able to be known, and yeah, it's going to take risk to be vulnerable, but it is worth the risk. Hopefully, our fear of betrayal doesn't allow us to lean into something that God has created for us, and that is to be in community, to share life with each other. So 
So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model that Jesus was to us, that he was willing to go to the table knowing what was going to happen, especially at the Last Supper. He knew what was going to happen, but yet he still leaned in to the calling that you had on all of our lives, and that is to press in to community. Because we know that how we're doing with you really, really matters and really really begins to take shape on how we're doing with other people. God, I pray for those of us who are afraid to open up. I ask that you would help us get to a point where we will trust you. We will take a step of faith and lean in into community at the table. Father, I pray for those who are yet a follower of Jesus and they're still trying to figure this out. I ask that you would help them understand that Jesus has an invitation of take and eat and it brings forgiveness and it brings spiritual life. I pray, Father, that you would allow someone to be drawn and make a decision to follow Jesus because following Jesus changes everything. Father, allow us to lean into the community, help us to find ways to meet at the table this week. In Jesus' name, amen.